4. Mystery Phantom Sniper We studied the Panther paper line by line. Many in the group were school dropouts and couldn't read effectively, so we went no faster than the slowest one could understand. Everyone seemed to enjoy the brief rundown on the functioning of firearms. Most of their experiences with guns, if any, had been with the Saturday night special variety. Everyone agreed that we should start meeting on a regular basis and begin searching for literature dealing with the history of black people in America and black people generally. There was an urgent necessity, felt by all, to break the chains of ignorance about our own history. I sold all my camera equipment and bought several Sears brand bolt-action 12-gauge shotguns. I needed to get everyone armed and accustomed to weapons as fast as possible. We started by going out hunting jackrabbits, which was an effective way to teach the use of and respect for firearms. Those who showed particular promise became responsible for instructing others. In addition to learning the proper use and maintenance of arms, we studied black history. It wasn't long before we had a chance to take our ideas public. San Francisco police had set up an ambush on a planned holdup at a motel, and they had called in television, radio, and newspaper reporters to capture the action. When the suspected would-be robber showed up, they shot him down in cold blood, live on television. The victim was a 17-year-old black youth from the Fillmore district, and several in our group knew him personally, or knew his friends. Everyone was enraged and wanted to do something. We decided it would be good to go into the streets, find his friends, and try to convince them of the need to arm themselves for self-defense, and possibly some of them would want to join us in our larger effort. We wrote a leaflet that used this blatant murder as an example of the treatment in store for blacks if they did not arm themselves and increase their vigilance. We went to my job after hours and printed up several thousand copies, and the next day, we hit the streets in search of the friends of the murder victim and distributed our leaflets. That was the first direct political action our group took. The brutal nature of the murder convinced us of the need to demonstrate that it was possible to arm oneself and be in the open about it. We always kept our guns in our cars as we moved around, but when we found the victim's friends in a park, we decided to carry them openly. I knew the gun laws due to my past passion of target shooting and hunting, and I knew that it was perfectly legal to walk around openly with arms in hand, back then, there was a restriction on concealing your weapons. Unfortunately, most black people were, and still are, ignorant of gun laws, and I guess we appeared to be more audacious than we really were. Being in the open, in direct contact with people, had a positive effect. It helped us overcome a certain shyness and, more important, gave us the chance to test our ideas against reality. As we gained confidence, we decided to operate openly as an organized group and move all over town. We had some small solid black buttons made, and as we moved from neighborhood to neighborhood we distributed them in the leaflets. Our sessions consisted of discussions of black history and current events relevant to black people, and we always ended with a demonstration of the use of weapons. It was at one such gathering that Sam Napier made himself known. He started rapping about Malcolm X and turned us on to the Socialist Workers' Party bookstore, where all the literature on Malcolm, plus records of his speeches, was available. What a find for us. Malcolm's records became invaluable organizing tools, and his autobiography became required reading. It was thanks to Sam that we found Malcolm's works. Nevertheless, Sam got on my shit list quick. Not long after we met, we were having one of our weekly community sessions when word came that a resident had just been arrested for not having paid a traffic ticket. 
Sam had the excellent idea of canvassing the neighborhood and asking for donations to bail out the brother. Everyone went to work, and in less than 10 minutes we had the required amount. Sam hollered out, everyone to City Hall to free the brother. By that time there was a respectable crowd and it looked like the whole community was heading out. When all the cars were loaded and it was time to pull off, Sam said goodbye, telling us he had to leave. I opened my jacket to expose my piece and asked him to get into the car, which he did, and together we went and bailed out the brother. I was always leery of those who ran their mouths and then disappeared when it was time to put their words into action. It was around that time that in Newark, New Jersey, a white policeman arrested a black taxicab driver on some traffic charge and took him to a police station, where he was terribly beaten. Word passed by radio, from taxi to taxi, until it finally reached the community. From July 12 to July 17, 1967, the people rebelled. After it was all over there were more than 20 dead, including six women and two infants. The body of one black teenager had 45 bullet wounds. About the same time, we were learning more about larger uprisings, including the Cuban Revolution under Fidel Castro in the 1950s, which we read about in Che Guevara's book Guerrilla Warfare, and also the Chinese Revolution, which we studied using the Little Red Book by Mao Zedong. With those documents, plus Malcolm's autobiography and Black Panther co-founder Huey P. Newton's essay The Correct Handling of a Revolution, we began preparing ourselves for the war of liberation that we considered imminent. We were hearing news reports of Stokely making revolutionary statements during his travels to Havana and Hanoi, and H. Rap Brown, who had been elected the chairman of SNCC, was really rapping now, saying, burn, baby, burn. With small, individual rebellions jumping off across the country, we redoubled our preparations. We were convinced that we were running behind and needed to catch up. We were eager to make contact with the Panthers in Oakland, but we didn't yet feel worthy to be in their presence. There was still much work to be done. So far, we had only talked and informed and armed ourselves, but we hadn't yet proved ourselves on the firing line. We didn't consider ourselves an organization in the traditional sense. We had no structure, no leaders, no officers. When there was a task to perform, the person most knowledgeable about the particular thing was responsible for it. So far, doing it that way had never presented any problems. Naturally, I knew our entire group wouldn't have to participate in military activity, but how would I find out who would go along with such actions? Keeping things on a need-to-know basis to ensure security, I decided to see which members of the group might be interested in getting down to more serious business. I was convinced it was necessary to move as fast as possible to form this smaller group and begin working together in order to weld the necessary unity and confidence that would permit our eventual engagement in military activities. I had already noticed that whenever we were just sitting around talking we would manage to assemble a fairly large group, but whenever some kind of action was called for, like when we started going out to distribute leaflets, those numbers were greatly reduced. I needed to find people who were serious and committed to the cause. Among those who were consistently present, I began to talk about the need to do something besides just talk. I observed their reactions, and of those who seemed to be the most determined, I chose to directly broach the subject of military action with only two. Their reaction was immediate and positive. The three of us then made a point of getting together, seemingly casually, after the larger gatherings had concluded, so we could talk things over. Soon we began to do small risk actions, mainly arsons and burglaries. 
the spoils from the burglaries were always sold to the community at very low prices, and the receipts were used to buy arms and ammunition. We didn't want anyone to be unarmed because of a lack of funds. Later, our group also began to sell weed to raise funds for arms and ammunition. At that time, lids, one-ounce bags, were selling for $20, so to build up steady customers and to become known, we put our lids on the market for $10. We also tried our hand at making small bombs with varying degrees of success. Fortunately, we never had an accident. It was around that time, in the summer of 1967, that the biggest rebellion to date broke out, in Detroit. From news reports it seemed like the people of Detroit were very combative. They kicked the police's behinds, the state troopers' behinds, and the National Guard's behinds. For three days the rebellion went uncontained, until the 101st Airborne was brought in, units of which were also fighting in Vietnam at the time. The toll in Detroit was also the heaviest of any similar action so far, with more than 40 killed, thousands wounded and arrested, and millions of dollars in damage. The war was really on. Someone in our group knew Emery Douglas, a San Francisco artist who was known to be a member of the Black Panther Party. We asked Emery to ask Huey Newton, the 25-year-old co-founder of the Panthers, if he would come speak at one of our group's meetings. He accepted with enthusiasm and the meeting was a great success. Finally, we had met and heard Huey in person. But we still didn't feel confident enough to establish a closer relationship with the Panthers. We felt we had first to prove ourselves worthy. The three of us started hanging out together on a regular basis. We began discussing what we could do as a significant action. It was well into August when we remembered that soon it would be the anniversary of the murder of the young black man on Hunter's Point that had sparked the San Francisco Rebellion the year before. We decided to launch our first operation on that anniversary. There was no propaganda machinery in place to exploit our action, so the action would have to speak for itself, loudly and clearly. One idea that we felt the community could support would be to locate the policeman who had committed the murder and execute him on the anniversary of the killing. We began researching newspapers from the year before, in the public library, to find out who and where the murderer was. We worked hard, but all we could come up with was the fact that he had been transferred to the Ingleside Police Station. We were unable to get a photograph of him, so we didn't know what he looked like. What to do? Since we couldn't identify the individual policeman responsible, and since time was short, as there were only a couple weeks left before the anniversary, we concluded that there was no alternative but to launch an attack upon the station itself. The conditions of the terrain around the Ingleside station were exceptionally favorable, it was located in a park right next to the freeway, and that would facilitate our escape, which we considered the determining factor in the success or failure of any action of a military nature. The negative factor was that if we were not lucky enough to get the actual assassin, the action might not be a clear message for the people. If the police did their homework properly, however, at least they would know why it had happened. And if that helped save one black life, then the action would be worth it. We went to work. In reconnoitering the area around the station we discovered a parking lot at San Francisco City College, located on the hill on the other side of the freeway, just overlooking the police station. That offered a nice, clear shot, but to ensure a safe getaway, we would have only one chance. It looked like the distance was around 150 yards, which meant we needed our best marksman. So, following the principle that each action should be led by the person most knowledgeable about the particular subject, 
I would be the one to squeeze the trigger. The work of the others was equally important, however, one person was to stay behind the wheel with the motor running, and the other was to be in the back seat holding the door open for me. After I fired I would dive into the car and the comrade in the back would help pull me in and close the door while the driver burned rubber to get away. Just preceding the action we were to steal a car to use, and of course we were to wear gloves, the thin cotton kind that obscure fingerprints but don't kill tactile sensations. The transfer point to different cars was fixed fairly close by to facilitate our getting out of the hot car. And we would do the deed at night. It felt good to have a solid plan, but that didn't mean there weren't complications. It was during this time that I had separated from my wife, Iris, and she was making things hard. After 10 years of marriage, with a one-year separation between the 6th and 7th years, we just couldn't get to an understanding on anything, and with the urgent need I was feeling to engage in the struggle, I didn't really want to take time out to try. For me, the struggle took precedence over everything. It had been a century since blacks were freed, but we were still the last hired and the first fired. And blacks were, and still are, the favorite targets of the racist police forces across the country. It was a well-known fact that wherever the Ku Klux Klan was active, a large percentage of its members came from local police, I knew that if someone didn't make the necessary sacrifice to try to set things right, it would never be done, and I wanted to be part of that change. Iris didn't approve of my political activities. The real drama came when Iris told my comrades that I was in love with a white woman. She had found out about my relationship with Stefania and seized upon that to get sympathy from her friends and to sow discord between my comrades and me. At that time, in 1967, the concept of cultural black nationalism, the idea that black people should embrace only black culture and renounce anything to do with whites, was spreading like wildfire, and when one of my comrades asked me about Iris's declaration and that I confirmed it, he exploded. For him, anything white was bad. I just couldn't make him understand that it didn't change anything at all about me or my commitment to the cause. I told him that if for no other reason than my grandmother being white, I would not, could not ever hate all white people. I told him about Mark Hansen and how he had helped wake me up to the situation of blacks, and I told him of Nancy and Stefania, both of whom I had met at critical phases of my developing political consciousness. The only thing that counted for him was whether or not my loving a white woman would prevent me from going through with our planned action. If not, then he would see. As it turned out, everything went as planned. The car was in place with the motor running, and the other comrade was in back holding the door open. For maximum steadiness, I placed the rifle on a log at the edge of the parking lot facing the station. I had a clear shot at a policeman seated at a desk near an open window. When I placed the crosshairs on him, another cop went out the door, got into a police car, and drove out of the park. I watched the car to make sure it wasn't coming our way, then relaxed a bit and canvassed the area again. In a short while a police car entered the park and drove up to the station. I told my comrades to get ready, that this was it. It would be easier to get this one, out in the open, than the one behind the desk. It turned out to be the cop who had just left, and he got out of the car carrying something. Judging the distance and accounting for the drop of the bullet, I placed the crosshairs on his head thinking I would hit him in the chest area. He turned from the car and started walking toward the station. I took a breath, let out half of it, started squeezing the trigger, and followed him with the crosshairs. About two or three yards from the door the rifle barked and belched out a flame that seemed to light up the whole area. 
I had never fired at night before, and I hadn't realized the importance of the flame that comes from a high-powered rifle. It blinded me. I didn't know if I had hit the target or not. I sprang to my feet, dove into the car, and felt my comrade pulling at me as he closed the door and the driver was burning rubber to get away. Everything went smoothly. We quickly changed into different cars and different clothing and then went our separate ways. I headed straight home and jumped in bed to try and calm myself and stop shaking. A big fat joint helped. It was not until I woke up the next morning and turned on the news that I learned I had hit the target. The officer's leg was seriously damaged. I must have misjudged the distance, the drop of the bullet was more significant than I had allowed for, but the fact that he had been wounded gave me a sense of exultation. Finally, I had returned a blow. I privately dedicated that one to the little black girls who were blown up in the church in Birmingham, Alabama. The feeling of cleansing was much as France Fanon had described it in The Wretched of the Earth. For me, no matter what was to happen in the future, I would always carry the knowledge that I had struck a blow. I had proved to myself, through my action, that I really believed what I had been saying, that I wasn't just talk. I don't think I could have pulled the trigger if it had been otherwise. I was only 31 at the time, but from then on I could always carry my head high. True, that was only the beginning, but for me, the beginning was the most uncertain. Before, I didn't really know how I was going to react. But now I knew I had what it takes. I dressed quickly to go buy the morning paper. The front page article on our action was headlined Mystery Phantom Sniper. I loved that. My only regret was that the satisfaction I was feeling had to remain a personal one. It couldn't be shared. 5. Use what you got to get what you need. Before we entered into a direct relationship with the Panthers, our group had wanted to prove our worthiness by our actions. Since that was no longer in question, contact was made and a rendezvous fixed to meet at Huey's Pad on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland. I don't remember much about that first gathering. Other than meeting David Hilliard, the Panther Party's chief of staff, for the first time, the only thing that stands out in my memory is a question from Huey as we were sipping coffee. He asked if I didn't think it better to be properly equipped before going into action, he suggested it was best to first rip off the necessary funds to get everything we needed in advance of launching a major effort. I had never anticipated such a question and wasn't prepared for it. I had practically memorized his essay The Correct Handling of a Revolution, in which he spoke of teaching by example, and so I blurted out the first thing that came to mind, which was, use what you got to get what you need. After the long, hot summer of 1967, with the rebellions in Newark, Detroit, and elsewhere, we felt that our preparations had, at least, put us on the same level as the rest of the country and that the revolution would not pass us by. Our San Francisco group started attending and participating in any and all functions relevant to black people, and we tried to get to know everyone in our area associated with the struggle. We also continued our community meetings. News of the death of Che Guevara in October of that year had us walking around in a stupor for a while, and although that came as a severe blow to the international struggle for freedom and justice of all people, we were proud to be among those who had responded to his battle cry and had picked up his fallen arms. Huey asked if we would conduct a meeting on Hunter's Point for him. He was supposed to go, but something had come up and he couldn't make it. We were honored that he thought enough of us to ask, and we were more than enthusiastic to do whatever he wanted. It was at that meeting that we had a new, surprising experience, we met our first resistance, 
in the form of Adam Rogers. He was supposed to have been the biggest, baddest nigger on Hunter's Point, but when we encountered him, he came across like an Uncle Tom. He seemed to be impressed with our firearms demonstration, but he was violently against the idea of black people arming themselves for self-defense. He was convinced that would increase repression, even though history proved him wrong. When we examine the history of repression of black people, the only time there was a significant decline in police violence and murders perpetrated against blacks was precisely the period when blacks were organized and had access to guns. Given the wave of terror and violence against blacks that continues to sweep the country, I truly believe there is a lesson to be learned from that fact. Rogers was one of the wounded in the Hunter's Point Rebellion of the year before, and a photograph of him had been used by the news media to illustrate articles on the riots that broke out following the killing of a black teenager by police that September. Because of that we were even more surprised by his reaction. It was not until later that we discovered that the administration of San Francisco Mayor Joseph Aliotto had sent in money after the rebellion and had bought off the so-called bad niggers. The same technique was used from coast to coast. Despite Rogers, most everyone seemed to like what we had to say and really related to the firearms demonstration. Several people wanted to take courses in handling weapons, and so I fixed a rendezvous for the following Saturday at the parking lot of the abandoned shopping center right on top of Hunter's Point. The next day I arrived at the point at 7 in the morning, in order to get set up before people began to gather. There wasn't going to be any target practice, but I would be firing a few shots into the air by way of demonstration. I knew that would pose no problem as far as the police were concerned, due to their racism, whenever they heard shots on the point, they generally looked the other way. Once, during a dispute between two gangs, shooting broke out and instead of the police coming in to break it up, they sealed off the area and let them shoot it out. The gun battle lasted 24 hours and the police didn't return until the next day. At around 8 o'clock I saw David Hilliard's car driving up, which I found surprising because we had only seen each other a couple of times before. As the car approached, I recognized Emery Douglas and George Murray. Everyone had strange looks on their faces that made it clear something was wrong. Damn. Huey had been shot and captured. He had shown up at David's, wounded and bleeding heavily. There was real concern for his life, so David drove him to the hospital and left him on the steps, then drove straight to San Francisco to find me. He said Huey had asked him to ask me to help out with the aftermath, specifically dealing with the passenger who had been in Huey's car at the time of the shootout with Officer John Frey of the Oakland Police, who'd been killed. There was also the problem of the guns Huey had stockpiled. I'll never understand why David didn't just bring the guns with him, but he hadn't, and I was obliged to go back into the area, get everything, and get back out, safely. That might sound easy but the shootout had occurred less than three hours before and there was one policeman dead and one seriously wounded. So, it was hot over in Oakland, to say the least. There was no time to go by the house and unload the guns I had on hand for the training, so I followed David back to Oakland with a trunk full of weapons. David took me into the backyard of a house that had a lot of weeds and a stack of old lumber in which he had stashed the gun. In his state of excitement he couldn't remember exactly where the pistol was, and while we were looking, an elderly black woman came out of the house next door and asked what we were doing. David kept searching and didn't look up. She then said, if you don't come out of there I'm going to call the police. I began to panic and told David to say something to the woman. When he rose up, she recognized him and calmed down. This was David's house and she was his neighbor.
On one hand, I was relieved, but on the other, if the police were looking for the passenger who had been with Huey, it was certain they wouldn't miss David's house, as both were known Panthers. Finally, he found the gun. I took it and told him to get the passenger to a lawyer while I split back to San Francisco. That gun was the hottest thing I had ever had in my hands. It still had that inimitable odor of burnt gunpowder that lingers on a weapon after it has been fired. They say God looks after fools and idiots, and it must be so, as I made it back to San Francisco without incident. I headed straight to the pad of a girlfriend who wasn't involved with any political activity in any form or fashion. I wanted to stash the gun at her house, but, bad luck, she wasn't home. I had recently met a sister named Barbara Easley who seemed cool, and as she lived close by, I went to her house. As soon as she opened the door, she asked if I had heard about Huey. I said yes and asked if I could stash something in her house. She agreed without hesitating, so I pulled out the pistol and stuck it under the water heater up among the pipes. Six months later, when we were moving Barbara's things to my pad, we had decided to live together, I reached up to make sure that the gun had been removed and was shocked to find the cylinder of the pistol, which also had the serial number of the weapon engraved on it. I didn't know who was supposed to have been responsible for removing the pistol shortly after it was put there, but all that time I had been staying with Barbara I was certain that it had been removed. That was my first real lesson in not depending on others, and I felt stupid that I had been confident enough to not even look to verify that it had been removed. To this day, I wonder whether or not that was incompetence or sabotage. We all spent the day of the shooting practically in mourning. With one policeman dead, one seriously wounded, and Huey in their hands, we were all thinking the same thing, even though no one said it out loud, the gas chamber at San Quentin prison. And that was if they didn't just kill him outright in the hospital. A meeting was called at Emery's house to discuss Huey's case. There were no more than 10 people, and we all agreed that we couldn't let Huey be sent to the gas chamber. The necessary machinery would have to be built to prevent it, and soon the Huey P. Newton Defense Committee was formed. It was at this same meeting that I first met Eldridge Cleaver. He was beginning to make contact with all of the political factions and tendencies in the Bay Area at that time. I attended a few gatherings, but some of the meetings got heated, with the various sides arguing over things that seemed, to me, to have no importance. I quickly grew frustrated and returned to our San Francisco group. As for Huey, we knew we had to do something, quick. They had killed Malcolm, Che, Patrice Lumumba, and Mehdi Ben Barka, the Algerian leader, and now they were trying to kill Huey. We had to return blow for blow. From now on it was going to be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Meanwhile, my group of people committed to serious action had grown from three to six. Each of us submitted a proposal of what new action we might take, and the one adopted was a plan to attack the police station on Hunter's Point. We had to move as fast as possible because if we allowed too much time to pass, the people would not make the connection between our action and the fact that the police had tried to kill Huey. We still had no propaganda machinery to get the word out. We worked hard putting together and rehearsing the plan of attack and escape. Again, we put a lot of emphasis on the escape. We knew that anyone could do just about any action they wanted, but the key was to get away safely. The element of surprise is always crucial, and we would have to hope there had been no leaks and that our targets were not sitting there in ambush, waiting for us. The night of the operation arrived and everything was ready. 
The getaway vehicle was in place with the motor running and the driver behind the wheel. One person was positioned to cover the back of the station with a 12-gauge shotgun loaded with 00 buckshot in case any of the officers tried to escape by the back door. The rest of us were at the corner of the building, waiting in the shadows. I was in front and the air was thick with tension as I felt the eyes of the other comrades waiting for me to step around the corner, which would commence the operation. I made the step. I passed the first window and a policeman looked out at me, but I was sure he couldn't see the guns because we were carrying them low. We were to begin shooting only when we were in position and had all the windows covered at the same time. If the shooting started before I reached the last window, those policemen inside might have the time to fire back. When the comrade behind me arrived at the first window and saw the policeman looking out, he shouted, motherfucker, and started shooting. I ran as hard as I could to reach the last window and, much to my surprise, when I reached it the two policemen there were crawling on the floor to hide behind their desks. I started firing from the hip and nailed one to the floor. He happened to be a black policeman we knew from the year before because he'd shot a resident of the Fillmore district. An angry crowd had gathered and started to move on him, and in newspaper accounts of the incident, he had said that he was rescued by his white police brothers. We did not touch the other officer because we recognized him as the person who had rescued a black teenager who was being beaten by white policemen at the police station. The whole operation lasted less than 15 seconds and was a total success. We ran for the getaway vehicle, picked up the comrade watching the back door, and sped off. We arrived at the bottom of the point before the first police car passed us going the other way, speeding up to the station. By the time roadblocks were set up, we had changed clothes and vehicles and were going our separate ways. The next day, Adam Rogers and his followers set up a picket line outside of the station to denounce the attack and pledge their support to the police. It was unfortunate we didn't have a propaganda mechanism to deal with all that at the time, and looking back, that might have been our biggest error. We were waging war with the San Francisco Police Department, and although the score was two to nothing in our favor, it was primarily only them and us who knew about it. The only mention in the friendly press was a congratulations in the next issue of the Panther paper. Although we thought we were preparing to join black people waging war in the rest of the country, in reality we were waging a private war. We were not aware at the time that we were out on a limb by ourselves. That December, the San Francisco police became the first department in the country to create a special unit when they requested a budget to build barricades and fences and to install spotlights outside their stations, a way of protecting themselves from the guerrilla attacks perpetrated against them, they said. They were getting wise to us, but we had no plans to back down. Panther activities were also picking up steam. Eldridge was running around all over the place organizing people, trying to keep Huey out of the gas chamber, and I was still helping the San Francisco group organize when I wasn't working at my job every day. I was a respectable nigger by day and a guerrilla by night. I was contacted by Laverne Anderson, Huey's girlfriend, who set me up with Huey's lawyer, Beverly Axelrod, on the campus of the University of California at Berkeley. Beverly told me Huey wanted me to organize an escape for him. Words are hard to come by when I try to describe my feelings upon hearing that. It was a mixture of pride and joy on one hand, the pride and joy of knowing Huey placed enough confidence in me to make such a request, and, on the other hand, the new type of tension that was becoming familiar whenever I began work on a new operation. One of the strongest elements of that tension was fear. 
there's no need to tell about all the planning we did to get Huey down from the 11th floor of the Alameda County Jail to freedom, that would be a book in itself. What I will say is that it took a lot of people in addition to those who would actually carry out the operation, including Huey's brother, Melvin, who would deal with any funds needed, and of course Beverly, who had direct access to Huey and was naturally the linchpin upon whom the success or failure of the operation would depend. I can also say this, for all of you physical fitness fans, it is amazing what running up and down 11 floors of stairs several times a week will do for your physical condition, if it doesn't kill you. In those first critical months of expanding the local group into a national organism moving under the name of the Black Panther Party, I was mostly just trying to figure out how to get Huey free. Because of that work and the need for utmost secrecy, I stayed only on the fringes of everything else. I did not take part at all in the day-to-day -day process of party decision-making, and I was even less involved in deciding future strategy. From the day Huey was shot in October of 1967 until January of 1969, I was not involved in the internal functioning of the party, which, in Huey's absence, had been turned over to Eldridge Cleaver and Bobby Seal. 6. Shake M Up It was with enthusiasm and honor that we finally met Bobby Seal, the man who, with Huey, had co-founded the Black Panther Party in 1966. It was Bobby who had led the Armed Panthers to the state capitol in Sacramento in May of 1967, and he was enthusiastic to meet us. Nothing was said directly, but he made it clear he had heard about our activities, and that swelled us with pride. He asked if I would accept a position on the party's central committee. I was knocked off my feet, thrilled by the offer, and very proud. I had a nagging doubt about whether or not I was worthy of such an honor, but I told him I would submit the idea to our San Francisco group and abide by their decision. They had no objections, and I was overjoyed to accept. The only condition was that my appointment had to be kept a secret from those outside the inner circle in order to maintain my effectiveness within the group and my activities as a guerrilla. By that time we had discovered Regis Debray's book Revolution and the Revolution, which analyzed how small, determined armed groups could inspire and lead revolutions in Latin America, it reinforced our belief that armed action was the highest form of politics, and we didn't relate to any literature that didn't support that thesis. We also got our hands on General Vo Win's Ops People's War, People's Army. We had no doubt that the FOCO theory espoused by these leaders, in which a small group of individuals committed to revolution could lead by example and inspire a larger group, could be applied to the situation inside the United States. It was only necessary to adapt it to an urban situation. Fueling our philosophy were incidents of violence against blacks. On February 8, 1968, Three blacks were killed and 50 were wounded on the campus of South Carolina State University when highway patrol officers shot into the crowd during a demonstration protesting racial discrimination at a local bowling alley. Most of the protesters were students at the university and were gunned down by law enforcement including the local police, state troopers, and National Guardsmen. Our anger grew. A big rally was planned for February 25 to celebrate Huey's 26th birthday. It would be held at the Oakland Auditorium, and Stokely Carmichael would be coming. Many new members were recruited into the Panthers at that time, in part because it was necessary to increase forces to handle the workload, which was growing daily. I wasn't involved with planning the rally, but I did organize the security that was to be discreetly placed throughout the auditorium. The Nation of Islam had killed Malcolm at a speaking event, so we wanted to be sure that if anyone attempted anything the night of the rally for Huey, we would be in a position to assure that, 
at the very least, he would not escape. Few Panthers had handguns at that time. In discussing the problem with Eldridge, I told him that in Nevada it was possible to buy them over the counter like a pack of cigarettes, with no waiting as in California, where the police had to approve the purchase before a handgun was delivered. A few days before the rally Eldridge gave me $2,000 to make a trip to Nevada and bring back a load of handguns. In Reno I found an army surplus store that had a small counter where handguns were sold. The owner had just received a shipment of Astra 9mm semi-automatic Spanish pistols. I checked them out, saw they were in working condition, and told him I would take all that he had, pulling out a handful of crisp hundred dollar bills. His eyes lit up. He brought out his wife and father from the back of the store to introduce them and made a pot of coffee. If it had been a century before, he probably would have been selling guns to the Indians, which was just what I was looking for, with the genocide of the Indians, the repressive machinery was now turned on blacks, so, in that sense, we were the Indians of today. He was only interested in money, and that suited me just fine. I told him to try to find some 9mm Brownings for me, and we exchanged telephone numbers. He said he would do his best, and I split back to San Francisco with my precious cargo. The next day was full of anticipatory excitement. Stokely was the first to arrive. Eldridge, accompanied by a couple carloads of Panthers from Oakland, brought him to Barbara's house, where I was then staying, and then left to bring others. Eyes popped when I started passing out pistols. It was only a few hours before Huey's birthday rally, and thank God nothing happened at the rally that necessitated the use of weapons, because having put guns in the hands of people who had no training or practice, I'm sure it would have been a disaster. Stokely explained the difficulty they had on the East Coast acquiring handguns and convinced me to let him have some to take back. I couldn't help but be honored to be supplying Stokely Carmichael with guns, so I agreed and figured I'd just have to make another trip to Reno to replenish our supply sooner than planned. When Eldridge returned, he was accompanied by none other than H. Rap Brown and James Foreman. My head was swimming. Just a few weeks before, these were the people we were hearing about in the news and admiring the most for their militant activities, and now, here we were, all in the same room. It was really a surprise seeing Rap because he was supposed to have been under house arrest and not allowed to leave Manhattan. In another car was Alprentice Bunchy Carter. After all I had heard about him as a founder of the Los Angeles chapter of the party, I was just as eager to meet him as the others. The thing that struck me about Bunchy was his eyes. He looked at you. It's rather difficult to articulate, but sometimes when someone is looking at you, you get the impression that their eyes aren't really looking at you, almost like a sideways glance, but when Bunchy turned his eyes on you, there was no doubt that he was really looking at you. After everyone was assembled, we made a convoy and split for the Oakland Auditorium. Outwardly, the rally was a success. Eldridge announced the merger of SNCC and the Panthers, and also the appointment of Rap Brown as the party's Minister of Justice and James Foreman as its Minister of Foreign Affairs. There was also a lot of shit going on behind the scenes that I didn't understand. There were contradictions between Stokely, Rap, and Foreman, both among themselves and between the three of them and Eldridge. And at the rally, Stokely spoke and completely contradicted everything he had said during his recent trip to Havana, Hanoi, and Europe. He more or less condemned all whites and any working coalitions with them, which was utterly contrary to the direction Eldridge had been taking the party in order to free Huey. According to what he had said earlier, it was necessary to make alliances wherever they could be made. 
the infrastructures available that would permit the necessary work of disseminating information were mainly in the hands of whites, and the idea was that whenever such resources could be found, and whenever those responsible were willing to put them at the disposal of the campaign to free Huey, there was nothing that would stop Eldridge from making an alliance. After the rally Stokely decided to stay in the Bay Area for a few days more, which suited us fine. Our small group in San Francisco was convinced that if there was anyone who could tell us about and connect us to what was going on in the rest of the country, it was Stokely. For the past couple of years there had been no one who had commanded more attention from the media. The day after the rally, before Rapp and Foreman left, everyone made the pilgrimage to see Huey in the Oakland jail. Pigs were everywhere. Even if you went to the toilet they were either already in there or they followed you in. And they were all over outside too. The street in front of Barbara's pad looked like the FBI's parking lot. When we moved in cars, they followed us, bumper to bumper. The heavy surveillance made us very uptight, to say the least. Stokely explained that, for him, it was always like that. Invitations were coming in from all over the Bay Area for Stokely to speak, but he had agreed to meet our group at the first opportunity. I passed the word, and the reception for him was prepared. We went from meeting to meeting and finally, after two days and nights of constant activity, we were finally free and headed for the group rendezvous. When our convoy arrived, the neighborhood was so filled with supporters that the pigs had decided to move back and wait outside the area. The whole community had been alerted, and everyone came outside to see and talk to the great Stokely Carmichael. At the first opportunity, I pulled him away and led him down some stairs into a pitch-black basement. At the bottom, I raised a flashlight and moved it from face to face and made introductions. I then turned it on the long table that everyone was standing behind. I passed the light slowly from one end to the other. There were weapons of all types, ammunition, and a stack of dynamite and fuses, and spaced between the items were newspapers with headlines showing different actions we had carried out. Stokely's reaction shocked us. The nigger panicked and said, get me out of here. Our admiration for his militant reputation did not let us believe what we were seeing. We attributed his reaction to the fact that only a few yards away were pigs of every species you could think of, and for him that meant danger. We were convinced that if he really knew this community and knew how it was organized, he would have felt as safe as he would have in his own home. We refused to consider the fact that he might just be all talk. Anyway, we asked him about the rest of the country and what was going on with other people moving in our fashion but we didn't get a clear response. His visit ended up leaving us with more questions than answers. Once we were past the excitement of the rally and its distinguished visitors, there was a meeting called of all the Panther leadership, which now included me. It was at that meeting, in March of 1968, when the definitive structure and hierarchy was outlined that was to govern the Black Panther Party until it cracked up in 1971. The single change that took place during those years was the position of Minister of Education, originally held by George Murray. After Murray was jailed for making controversial statements while in his role as an instructor at San Francisco State College, now University, and then began claiming he was talking to God, he was replaced by Ray Massa Hewitt, from Los Angeles, it was at that meeting that I was designated Field Marshal. Field Marshal. That sounded good. I knew of Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery of Britain and his reputation as an excellent strategist during the Second World War, and since I considered myself well on my way to a good military career, I thought the title of Field Marshal to be right in line. But, in terms of my work with the Panthers, 
I was hoping someone would tell me exactly what I was supposed to do. Sometime later I had the chance, or rather I took the opportunity, to ask Bobby Seal just what my responsibilities were. His response was not reassuring. He said simply, whenever you see something that needs to be done, do it. The only clear-cut instruction I was ever given was to organize a Panther office in San Francisco. That was easy. It was only a matter of renting a storefront on Fillmore Street, cleaning it up, then painting and hanging out our shingle. At that stage in the development of the party, more people were coming to join than we had capacity to absorb. It was also at that time that I quit working my day job and became a full-time militant. I rented a large five-room flat on Page Street so that my closest comrades wouldn't have any problems finding housing. Now when I would get up in the morning and step into the hallway, it would be wall-to-wall niggers. There was literally no place to walk. It soon became necessary to get other pads. Jerry Varnado of the San Francisco State Black Student Union took the flat next door, which was identical to the one I had just rented. Others took another flat around the corner. Finally, everyone had a place to sleep. Then the real work of learning to live together began. At the pad where I stayed, for example, the average number to eat and sleep every night was between 40 and 50. This experience in collective living was necessitated both by the struggle and by the need to provide for our own security. It also turned out that just the simple act of shopping for and preparing food was enough to revolutionize our way of thinking and doing things. We quickly found that individualism would block and destroy any incentives to do anything for the group, the only thing that worked was the subordination of one's own desires to the collective good. That may not sound difficult, but try doing it with dozens of people who don't know it's the only thing that will work especially among males that had never spent one instant of reflection on the social relationships between men and women. Imagine taking junkies, dudes just out of the joint, and lumpen types from the ghetto and putting them in the kitchen to cook and clean up. I'll just say this, whenever a pad was abandoned, for whatever reason, it was no longer fit for human habitation. You can't imagine the crap and filth created by 40 to 50 people living together in five or six rooms, it was frightening. One day, I had to draw the line and call a meeting when it happened too many times in a row that I went to change my underwear only to find someone had taken my clean shorts. And that wasn't even the problem. The problem was that they were leaving behind their dirty ones. And they were dirtier than anything imaginable. To avoid an epidemic, I found it necessary to teach people basic hygiene. Very quickly, individualism and selfishness became dirty words, and also liberalism. It was necessary to constantly give criticism and learn to make self-criticism. That's why Mao's teachings had such an influence on us. It was in his writings that we found principles to apply in learning to live with each other. It was the imperatives of the struggle that dictated the need for collective living and not any abstract idea about wanting to set up utopian communes. In May of 1969 I left the Bay Area to go to the East Coast and put back together party chapters that had been severely damaged by the government's increasing repression. Two months later, I returned, just in time for the party's united front against fascism gathering at the Oakland Auditorium, a kind of congress of anti-fascist organizations working for change. When I walked into the Page Street pad where members of the group were living, my eyes watered up, but this time it was with tears of joy. Everything was neat as a pin, and everything was in its proper place. That reality represented a revolutionary change in the way my comrades had begun to live their daily lives with those around them. Their leap in consciousness, their level of respect for each other, 
meant that the day of victory was a little bit closer. My other preoccupation during this time was military preparedness, specifically, assuring everyone had the necessary means of defense in case those cowboy pigs who parked in front of our houses and apartments every now and then with their shotguns hanging out the window got some ideas about playing Superman. We had our neighborhood security as well organized as was technically possible with what we were able to lay our hands on. All our pads were within a square block, and if anyone ever came under attack, there were several places to fall back on, each one organized as well as the other. Also in those first days there weren't yet rules within the organization that prevented anyone from setting up and executing on their own an unauthorized operation of a military nature. In fact, most ways that daily needs were provided for at that time could be classified as military. Nothing was ruled out. If it paid the rent, the gas and lights, the telephone, food, clothes, guns, ammunition, transportation, gasoline, office supplies, it was valuable. In the year 1968, more arms were stolen from the mail in San Francisco than in the rest of the country combined. Being civil service work that required only a relatively simple test for employment, the personnel was about 80% black, and because the workers there made no contact with the public, they wore street clothes, making it easy for us to blend in. By way of pushing for gun control, someone in Congress got the brilliant idea to pass a law that required any package containing firearms to have a big red label on it saying guns. We had a field day. Every now and then we would go down to the mail office, which was close to the ferry building, walk in through the loading ramps, which were never guarded, and pick up all packages with the red label, as simple as that. I don't know about the rest of the country, but I know for a fact that in San Francisco there were a lot of guns in niggers' hands. Meanwhile, the task of preparing Huey's escape was nearing the stage of implementation. The target date, Easter Sunday, was about three weeks away, and our group had been working hard to ensure success. Security dictated that those of us involved in the effort remain on the fringe of other official party business, and that gave us a different perspective compared to what people closer to the action were experiencing. And we didn't like what we saw. It had become clear to us that the party leadership was running a heavy get-the-gun-and-do-your-thing line, but in reality we didn't see the rhetoric being put into action. We decided to invite the Central Committee for a meeting to let them know how we felt, and to pass on to them my most recent arms purchases. Everyone showed except Bobby, since the pigs were looking for him. In addition to the Central Committee, there were several East Bay Panthers, including June, Roosevelt, Hilliard, who was David's brother, and John Seal, who was Bobby's brother. The handful of us who had been working secretly for Huey's escape decided that, for just this one time, we would show ourselves as a group. By then we even had our own uniform, which was built on functionality rather than aesthetics, we dressed in all black and wore army field jackets that had good pockets for carrying things. Two comrades carried the two 12-gauge riot pump shotguns I had bought, and the rest carried M1.30 caliber carbines. After members of the Central Committee were seated, our SF group came out of a room where they had been waiting behind closed doors. No one knew they were there until they came in and positioned themselves across the room, facing everyone seated, with their weapons held across their chests. We more or less told them we heard them talking and talking but didn't see them doing anything. We read quotes from Che and Mao on the necessity of example, plus another quote that went, the primary job of the party is to provide leadership for the people. It must teach by words, and action, the correct strategic methods of prolonged resistance. 
when the people learn that it is no longer advantageous for them to resist by going into the streets in large numbers, and when they see the advantage in the activities of the guerrilla warfare method, they will quickly follow this example. We asked if anyone in the room knew the author of those words. David Hilliard was the only one who ventured a guess when he asked if it was Che. No. We said. That was Huey P. Newton, your Minister of Defense, in his essay The Correct Handling of a Revolution. There were no visible reactions from the other side, but we had planted some invisible seeds. With that, we ended the meeting and gave them the arms we had been holding. A couple of weeks later, on April 4, 1968, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. He was there supporting the garbage workers' strike. Black communities exploded, and 150 cities from coast to coast started burning. Our house immediately filled with people, armed to the teeth, asking, what are we going to do? It was with painful difficulty that I found the force to convince everyone that we had learned that unbridled violence was not the correct way to deal with such things. If anything was to be done, it would have to be planned and executed like a proper operation, there couldn't be any spontaneous stuff. It was even more difficult because I wanted to go out and do something myself. After King's assassination, everyone lived in a state of constant alert. Security was reinforced all around, and weapons were constantly being cleaned and kept in readiness. By that time there was considerable interchange between the Panthers in Oakland and San Francisco. Wendell Wade and little Bobby Hutton were among those who stayed with us for a few days. One evening was indelibly etched into my memory because it was the last time I was to see little Bobby alive. The evening after King's death, I received a phone call from Eldridge saying they were getting ready to move. I asked whether it would be on this side or that side, meaning in San Francisco or Oakland. He replied it would be on their side and hung up. I immediately alerted everyone, turned all our radios to different stations, and waited for news. I couldn't help but wonder why he had called to tell me. I wondered if he expected me to do something on my side of the bay and, if so, what? I just couldn't figure it out. We waited for the radio to give us some news, or for the telephone to ring. It wasn't long before reports started coming in on the radio. The first news flash spoke of a shootout in West Oakland, with several policemen wounded. Multiple arrests had been made, and reporters said shooting was still going on in the area. We immediately started making phone calls, and in record time we had organized teams of doctors and a couple of nurses that we either sent to a house in Oakland that was set up to receive the wounded or sent into the streets to rescue any stragglers that might be stranded in the area. After it was all over, little Bobby was dead and Eldridge was wounded and captured, along with eight others. What a catastrophe! Stragglers were picked up all over the place, and no two people had the same story. No one knew what had really happened. All everyone agreed on was that when the shooting began, niggers started running in all directions. And what was worse, in trying to escape and not be captured, they had thrown away their weapons. The police found guns all over the area. An impressive amount of equipment was lost. Everyone loved little Bobby. When he was shot down in cold blood after he'd surrendered to the police and come out of the surrounded house with his hands up, it was as if they had killed the soul of the Panthers. After Huey and Bobby created the party, little Bobby became the first member. He was the party's treasurer, and he personified pride, courage, and revolutionary determination. During this final battle, he had stayed in the house filled with choking, 
blinding tear gas for an hour and a half, returning shot for shot with the pigs who had him surrounded. Little Bobby was 17 years old, just two weeks shy of turning 18, when he was murdered. Coincidentally, Marlon Brando was staying with us at the time of the shootout. He had come up from Hollywood to get an understanding of what the Panthers were all about, and he stuck around for little Bobby's funeral, which was attended by niggers from all over the Bay Area, the majority coming dressed in the Panther uniform, a black beret and black leather jacket. In paying last respects, everyone stood at attention, more or less in a military fashion. Also standing there was Brando. Naturally, a photographer sees the moment, capturing Brando standing with his hair blowing in the wind, a serious look on his face, with the military formation of Panthers receding into infinity in the background. Because of Brando, that photograph made the news and was published in magazines and newspapers around the world. It was that photograph that made the Panthers known on an international level for the first time. And that's to say nothing of the impact it had inside the United States. For many people across the country, this was the first time they had heard of the Panthers, and headquarters soon started receiving inquiries from all over the country on how to set up more chapters of the organization. The biggest impact the Panthers had on black people at that time was, finally, introducing the idea that there are niggers ready to fight back, in an organized fashion, with guns in hand. But what a disaster! The only members of the Central Committee left on the streets that had been close to the day-to-day decision-making were Bobby Seale and Eldridge's wife, Kathleen. Everyone else was in jail, in the hospital, or dead. Nobody said it or showed it, but even though interest in the organization was up, the morale of the Panthers was at its lowest level. As for the operation to bust Huey out, it was dead. The target date had been Easter Sunday, when the personnel of the jail would have been at its minimum but that happened to be the Sunday after the shootout that cost the life of little Bobby. All those busted in the shootout had been put into the same jail with Huey, and jailhouse security was reinforced, with policemen on every floor. Huey sent word to cancel the operation. Charles Gary, his lawyer, was confident that he could get Huey out of jail after a couple of years' work, and Huey was apparently ready to deal with it that way. Given the new situation, it was with relief that we received the order to cancel the operation. With all the attention being drawn to the Panthers by then, the powers that be started intensifying their campaign of slander and denigration, using the examples of Huey's case, the shootout with Eldridge and Little Bobby, and the death of Bunchy's brother, Arthur Glenn Morris, which had occurred the month before. In March of 1968, Arthur was the first Black Panther to be killed. It was Arthur who had introduced us to shake him up, white port and lemon juice, and Arthur was the first one I heard use the expression right on. Arthur had been set up for a rip-off in Los Angeles and received a 12-gauge shotgun blast at point-blank range, although he was successful in shooting and killing his two assailants before he himself died. His death made only a small news item, but the shit hit the fan when the gun Arthur had used was traced back to the dealer in Reno I was doing business with. When the authorities checked the dealer's books and saw all the guns I had been buying, they shit bricks. They used their flunkies in the press to run scare articles all over California. Every Bay Area newspaper carried front-page articles with headlines designed to alarm people, saying things like Panther stockpiling guns. The articles went on to tell of my trips to Reno and the quantity of guns I had been buying. They left no stone unturned. They even went so far as to describe the money I was using, saying I was coming into the store with thousands of dollars of brand new hundred-dollar bills. 
The fact that all my purchases were perfectly legal was omitted. They did everything to frighten people and turn them against us. The California state legislature also got into the act, and a bill was prepared making it illegal to purchase weapons out of state and then bring them back in. During the debate on the legislation, a colored assemblyman, Mervyn Dimoli, read into the record the serial number of each gun I had purchased during my trips. I hoped he choked before he finished. There's nothing sadder than seeing a nigger Tom putting the noose around his own neck. 7. The sky's the limit. All visible panther activity was now directed toward getting Eldridge and the others released on bail so the work could be intensified to free Huey. At least all the attention the party was receiving had its positive side, it got the message out about Huey's case and the need for blacks to arm themselves for self-defense from coast to coast. At that time we did not have the organizational machinery to spread the word as far and wide as did the news articles designed to turn people away from us. Groups had begun forming all across the country, with people wearing black berets and black leather jackets calling themselves Black Panthers. Since the dialectic is in all things, however, that new mobilization also had its bad side. It seemed each group of Panthers that had sprung up literally overnight had its own different ideology, and in many instances, irreparable damage was done that we were never able to correct because people were coming together under the name of the Black Panther Party but they had no idea what we stood for. It was even worse in Europe, where it seemed that every black who traveled abroad between 1968 and 1972 called themselves Panthers. Whenever real representatives showed up to organize some type of support activity, there were always a lot of difficulties to overcome caused by some jive niggers trying to get by. We were not able to effectively move to clean that problem up until the spring of 1969. By then, with the help of supporters, everyone who had been busted in the shootout was finally bailed out. At the hearing for Eldridge, the state couldn't prove he had done anything, so he too was released. He was fortunate to have gone before a judge interested in justice rather than furthering his career. It was at that point the remobilization of the Free Huey campaign moved into high gear. Through a coalition between the Panthers and the Peace and Freedom Party, Eldridge became a candidate for President of the United States on the Peace and Freedom ticket. The party saw his candidacy as an effective way to make Huey's case known on the largest scale at that time, since as a presidential candidate, there were speaking engagements to be had in every corner of the country. That was the first big push of the Black Panther Party on a national scale, and wherever Eldridge went, teams accompanied him to handle organizational problems. If there was no party chapter in a particular location, they would set one up, and if there was one, they would clean it up, get it organized properly, and get the responsible leaders to headquarters in the Bay Area so they could find out what the Panther Party really was. By election time of 1968, there were branches of the Panther Party all across the country more or less coordinated from the headquarters in Oakland. Eldridge made a memorable swing through the country. I recall the song he composed and that he convinced every audience to rise and sing with him at the end of every speech. At New York University, I even saw two nuns in their habits stand with the rest of the audience and sing Fuck Ronald Reagan. The best-known slogan that came from the Free Huey campaign was Free Huey or the Sky's the Limit. People were organized from coast to coast around that slogan, and because of it, military preparations reached a fever pitch. We were always on the lookout to buy machine guns and hand grenades, but as far as rifles, shotguns, and handguns went, we really ended up with more than we needed. Our stocks of dynamite started growing also. When Huey's trial began on July 15, 1968, 
we were ready to implement that slogan. A week later the Central Committee went to New York to present Huey's case to the United Nations. James Foreman was to handle the arrangements of getting us into the UN and also setting up a press conference. That was in keeping with his title of Minister of Foreign Affairs, and it helped that he already had observer status at the UN as SNCC's representative of international relations. Money was collected and the entire Central Committee flew to New York. What a trip! When I traveled with Eldridge I usually dealt with his personal security, and therefore I was often in his company, which was an honor. We were picked up at the airport by members of the New York branch of the party, who put us in a rather beat-up car that was usually used as a gypsy cab. It didn't really matter to us, though, it was transportation that would get us where we needed to go. Three days later, however, we learned it was a stolen car. Those New York niggers were either crazy or double agents, we didn't know which. When 21 members of the local party were arrested less than a year later, in April of 1969, we learned that at least five police agents had been in leadership positions with the group and were responsible for the massive takedown of the group that came to be known as the Panther 21 or the New York 21. We also learned later that our bodyguards had been two women who worked for the Department of Corrections, they had been chosen as our bodyguards because they were the only members of the New York chapter who were legally authorized to carry guns. Man, they really did things different in New York. I can only say that, Having just left a community where military preparedness and precision was the order of the day, the differences in the party from California to New York were radical, if not revolutionary. Eldridge and I stayed at the home of our bodyguards. That was the first occasion we had time alone to talk since the first meeting after Huey had been shot, and I finally had the chance to ask him if the meeting our group had called to criticize the Central Committee had prompted the action in which little Bobby was killed and Eldridge himself was wounded and captured. I wasn't really surprised when he said yes. I wanted to know how it had happened, it didn't appear to me that the planning of the operation had been very thorough. I couldn't believe my ears when he said the only plan was to go find some pigs. No organization, no rehearsal, nothing. Just a haphazard assemblage of niggers who were handed guns and told, let's go. In addition to that, one of their group had just shot up some drugs. No one else knew it at the time, and Eldridge told me that this individual not only talked after he was arrested but he told the truth, and then embellished on it. Now, I knew that when it came to political affairs Eldridge had no equal at the time, but when it came to handling the military side of Panther actions, something was obviously not working. So I told him that, from then on, if there was anything he needed done of a military nature, he was to call on me and I would deal with it for him. By the time we got to New York, the internal contradictions in SNCC were at an all-time high, and to top that off, it seemed that James Foreman was going into a nervous depression. Not only had he not made the arrangements to get us into the United Nations, but his press conference didn't come off right either. So there was the entire Central Committee of the Black Panther Party displaced for nothing. Talk about some mad niggers. And everyone was packing heavy. The lid was just barely held on when that all went down. When we finally got into the UN, it turned out to be only a symbolic gesture, a matter of being received by someone, I don't remember who, who could do no more than take the dossiers we had brought stating Huey's case and see that they were distributed to UN delegates. At the press conference, there was more sabotage, as it seems the press was told it would be happening at one time and we were given another. A real fiasco. Among the New York Panthers who stood out and made an impression on me, Two of the best were Sakuo Dinga and Lamumba Shakur.
these were some Rydon brothers. They turned me on to my very first hashish. There was also Janice, Said Malik Shakur, the Minister of Information in the Bronx, and Chairman Brothers. It was clearly due to shortcomings on my part, but I could never reconcile the image of Chairman Brothers, looking like a Sunday school teacher, being an official of the Black Panther Party. I know looks are only superficial and it's what's inside that counts, but every time I saw Chairman Brothers I wanted to offer him a seat or something. The policemen in New York were a little different too. The day we went to the UN there was a simultaneous street march with hundreds of Panthers from the New York area plus around 2,000 supporters mobilized from the community. I remember seeing all those blacks coming down the street waving those blue flags with the Panther emblem and the demand to free Huey. Those of us who were to go inside were gathered on the corner across from the UN building when a New York City policeman came up to me and said, with a thick foreign accent, it's against the law for more than three of you to be assembled at one time. I was so taken aback by the ridiculousness of what he said that all I could do was laugh. But it was sad evidence of the state of American society that a white, foreign-born citizen who spoke broken English could shoot me down and be acquitted for justifiable homicide the next day. Me, who was still fighting for the freedoms that my grandfather didn't get over a century ago when he was released from the Cox Plantation. Stokely had come to New York to go to the UN with us, and after everything was over he asked me to accompany him on a speaking trip to Mobile, Alabama. I was enthused at the prospect of finally seeing the South. I talked it over with Eldridge, then accompanied Stokely to his pad in Washington, D.C. The thing that always bothered me about being in Stokely's company was the constant surveillance, you literally couldn't do anything without the authorities right there under your nose, and I could never get used to that. At least in California they respected us enough to keep a certain minimum distance, but with Stokely it was ridiculous. Our last day in Mobile the agents called us in the morning to wake us up so that we wouldn't miss our plane. Traveling in the South with Stokely was an eye-opener. Black people loved Stokely. Wherever we went they came from all around to see and cheer him. Young, old, crippled, blind, everybody. That was one of the biggest differences I saw between the North and the South. In the North it was the youth, but in the South it was everybody who was mobilized. From Washington to Mobile there was a layover in Atlanta, and that was also a revelation for me. It was the first time I ever saw black people living like white folks. Of course there were the poor parts of town, as in any other city, but that was the first time I saw whole sections of town occupied by blacks as bourgeois as anything I had ever seen. I was very surprised. The arrival at the airport in Mobile was yet another new experience. Everyone turned out in force to welcome Stokely. There were black people, but also plainclothes agents, local police, and FBI everywhere. Mobile was the first city in the deep south I had seen, and the surprise for me was the fact that there were two distinct worlds, one black and one white, even down to the styles of the buildings. It looked like a place where one could live without ever having to go downtown and mix with white people. Out in the community, there was a festive atmosphere surrounding Stokely's visit. Everybody wanted to see the brother, and everybody wanted to feed us. I had some memorable baked shrimp and unforgettable steaks in Mobile. Wherever we went, Stokely would introduce me as the field marshal from California. During our stay a group of people organized a meeting to ask about things on the West Coast, but they didn't want to hear any talk about politics. They wanted action. They wanted to know what we were going to do and when we were going to do it. I learned in mobile that you don't mobilize people if you're not serious, because they will call your hand every time.
Huey's trial ended on September 9, 1968, and at last the day of the verdict arrived. He was convicted of voluntary manslaughter in the death of Officer Frey and sentenced to 2 to 15 years in prison. At the San Francisco Panther office so many people gathered to protest that they couldn't all get inside, and by the end of the afternoon the street was practically blocked. The tension in the air was heavy. Everyone was waiting for the call to action from headquarters. Frankly, by that time I understood that no such word could, or would, be given. The April shootout when little Bobby was killed was the best illustration of what happens when things were done in that kind of haphazard manner. I was thankful that it wasn't on me to take the first step. Time passed with no action, and eventually we reached a point when everyone in the San Francisco group thought it best that I'd take the initiative to call headquarters and see what was going on. Bobby came to the phone and explained, in a calm and logical way, that free Huey or the sky's the limit was our organizing slogan, implying it would guide what came next. I understood and agreed with most everything he said. I also understood that you don't mobilize people around a slogan of action if you never intend to follow through with it. The masses alone, without the guidance of an organization, might not have the capability to analyze a situation and devise a strategy and action efficient enough to deal with it, but when they give their confidence and support to those that have the audacity to do so, their intelligence and understanding must constantly be respected and nurtured. I don't know of a more invincible weapon than honesty. True enough, standing before me were hundreds of people ready to implement the slogan that had been invoked if Huey was not freed. And he hadn't been. Charles Gary was confident he could have Huey on the streets with a couple of years' work, and it would turn out that he was right, but, at the time, it was on me to hang up the phone, turn to the waiting crowd, and convince them of all that. I was ashamed and embarrassed, and I wanted to run and hide. It was also dishonest to have sworn action and then be doing nothing. I was wondering what would be left after I finished talking. I was convinced that the Panthers would now be considered part of the crowd of all talk and no action. After the Huey verdict, attention slowly changed focus to Eldridge's case. He had been accused of attempted murder during the Oakland shootout. He had been released on bail, but when he went to a later hearing, he was ordered back to prison to serve the rest of the sentence. He had around four or five years left to serve. For the time being, however, he remained out on parole. On my last trip to Reno, I'd been informed by the arms dealer that he couldn't sell me anything, but he also told me that the FBI had rooms at the hotel around the corner and he was supposed to call them the instant he saw me. I realized that to stay in business he would have to do their bidding, but I also began to think that behind his desire for money he might have other, more positive qualities. He could have sold me the guns, called the FBI, and lost nothing, but instead he told me that, as far as he was concerned, I had the right to buy as many guns as I wanted, just like anyone else. He said if I had brought someone with me, he would sell the guns to them and technically be in the clear. That was perfect, and after carrying out that plan and buying everything he had, I took only back roads to get to the Bay Area in case the FBI had had the store under surveillance. I was driving my GTO and was prepared to give them a run for their money. With the loss of our Reno connection, we needed a new supplier, and soon we discovered the Army Surplus Store at 85th and Western in Los Angeles, which had a big gun department. I dressed as a businessman and flew down to purchase 15 tanker model M1 rifles. I went to fellow Panthers Erica and John Huggins's pad to prepare for the trip back to San Francisco. Captain Franco, Frank Diggs, was there, 
and the three of them helped strip the cases of all identification and then drove me to the airport. The airline didn't want to let me on the plane with all those packages and said I would have to send them air freight. I convinced them that the cases contained flags that were needed urgently in San Francisco for a convention, and with a $5 bill to each of the airline workers, they were loaded on the plane with me. That was one of the closest times I came to being busted. Apparently, after I had made the purchase, the people at the Army Surplus store had called the FBI and while I was flying to San Francisco the person in the car that had driven me around in Los Angeles was vamped on by the local police and FBI agents. I didn't know it at the time, but it was illegal to have in your possession more than nine weapons of the same type and caliber. The law said that constituted an arsenal and was a felony offense. John called Panther headquarters to have someone pick me up at the San Francisco airport. After getting off the plane, I got a porter with a trolley, loaded up the 15 cases, and with as cool an air as possible, headed for the exit. When I reached it I almost fainted. Someone at headquarters had sent five of the baddest, meanest-looking panthers, in uniform, to meet me. I told them to get the stuff into the car, quick, and let's get out of here. If there were any agents around at all, either local or federal, they would have recognized the telltale silhouette of the gun cases and would know what was inside. I must say that there is such a thing as luck. The next day I received a phone call at the San Francisco office saying, Hello, Donald, this is the FBI and we would like to know what you plan to do with all those guns. I never quite figured out if the agents were obliged by Hoover to make such stupid phone calls, or whether they thought I might really tell them something, or whether they were messing with me just to have a good laugh. Eldridge was traveling all the time then. The election was just a few weeks away. I was impressed with his gift for Gab and how he could convince any audience to listen to his words and sing his song. But I also saw a certain type of history repeating itself. Everywhere he spoke at that time he said that when the day came when he was to surrender and go back to prison, he would barricade himself deep in the black community, in Oakland, California, armed to the teeth and surrounded by panthers. And, if the authorities wanted him, they would have to shoot their way in to get him. Now, that sounded bad and always got some cheers, but really, I knew that he knew that this wasn't really the way to deal with that possibility. And yet even after the shootout when little Bobby was killed, there was the nagging question of whether or not he would try something like that. That question wasn't answered until the last time I saw him in the States and he admitted the situation couldn't be dealt with that way and that instead of staying and fighting he would be splitting. When we said our goodbyes, we embraced, not knowing when we'd meet next. I didn't see him again until the following year, when I visited Algiers, on the north coast of Africa, where he would ultimately end up after dodging his parole hearing. Stokely, meanwhile, was also doing a lot of traveling and speaking. He had a letter from the people in Mobile, Alabama, requesting that I come down and teach them a few things, and since he had a speaking trip lined up already, it was agreed that I would accompany him and afterward go on down to Mobile and see what I could do. Stokely and I went everywhere, Detroit, St. Louis, Boston, Chicago, and many places in between. We then went to his pad in Washington, D.C., to rest up before the trip south. In our private discussions we were trying to reach an agreement on how we were seeing things, and in the end we had to agree to disagree. I was, and remained, convinced that any meaningful change in the situation of black people in the United States was intertwined with meaningful change for everybody. The present form of racism keeps people with common economic interests divided and at each other's throats, and I knew one thing for sure, 
if the American people could be made to realize that everyone is a victim of the present social and economic order, instead of following the finger pointing at blacks, or at Arabs with their oil, there could be effective mobilization and change inside the United States. Stokely, on the other hand, believed that the only solution was to kill them all. The whites had to die. Between us, his nickname became Kill'em All Carmichael. I remained firmly convinced that we needed to learn to live with each other or face certain extinction, for the entire human species and maybe all life forms. As a result of my observations during my travels, I slowly began to realize that the direction our group had been moving was far in advance of the rest of the country. I found nothing, anywhere, on the same level. I began to see why we hadn't gotten a clear-cut answer from Stokely when we asked him what was going on in the rest of the country, and I began to see, thanks to my travels with him, that the present need was to elevate the consciousness of people to the point that they would not only support but join in on the type of activities we had been engaging in as a smaller group. The objective conditions were ripe, in fact, they were rotten, but unfortunately the subjective conditions were nowhere near ready to begin moving the rest of the country the way we had been moving. We left Washington D.C., and headed for Atlanta, stopping at every major city for speaking engagements. The enthusiasm I saw was rather frightening, frightening because I wasn't seeing evidence that we were capable of properly organizing the people and raising them to a higher level of consciousness. The most frightening realization of all was that the people were expecting us to. In Atlanta I took my leave of Stokely and headed for Mobile. I was surprised to see that the agents who usually followed Stokely around were now just as interested in me, and I too had a welcoming party at the airport. That was going to be a problem. I wasn't there on a speaking trip, I was there to work, and I couldn't do that if the authorities were on my tail. So I had to hide out for three days before they got confused enough to start looking for me somewhere other than the last place they had seen me. When I was finally able to see the people who had asked me to come to Mobile, they wanted to know what was going on in the rest of the country and which way the Black Panther Party was going. I relayed my own ideas, which turned out to be wishful thinking on my part, and then they were ready to get down to more serious business. By then I was sure of one thing, one was not supposed to encourage people to take a path that one was not sure about. I talked to them of the need to be organized and have confidence in one another, and I thought a good way to build the necessary unity of a group was by starting out with simple things and then moving on to more complex projects as confidence and unity was built. As for sharing practical information, I showed them how to make a Molotov cocktail that doesn't have to be lit but explodes into flame upon impact. After the sessions ended I started circulating freely, and boy, were the agents glad to see me. That time they stuck to me like white on rice as I spent the next few days moving around meeting groups all over town. The people of Mobile left me with some indelible souvenirs, and I remember them as just about the warmest, most welcoming people I had ever met. One evening while hanging out at my favorite club, round about midnight, one of the people I had come to see showed up with a big grin on his face and told me to come outside, as he had something to show me. As I stepped out of the door I froze in my tracks. I knew immediately that my visit to Mobile was over. The sky was red. It looked like half the town was burning. Needless to say, I got out. About a month and a half later, I received a package from Mobile that was full of newspaper articles about the incident. It seems that my visit had inspired more than 100 fires, resulting in millions of dollars in damage. I knew I wouldn't be able to visit Mobile again anytime soon. It was the end of 1968, and Richard Nixon had been elected and Eldridge had disappeared.
I went back to Washington and then on to New York to spend a few days with Stokely and his family. He had anticipated Nixon's victory and had already made plans to leave the country at the first of the year, which was about a week away. We said our goodbyes and I returned to California.